0: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning. good morning. It is good to gather with you this morning to give glory to the name of Jesus. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Kelton. I also serve as one of the pastors here of Stafford Baptist Church. I'd love to greet you after service if you'd be willing to, to hang around and, and meet us. This morning, we continue our sermon series in the book of Beginnings in Genesis chapter 22. So please, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Genesis Chapter 22, verse 1. Genesis is the first book in your Bibles. Large numbers are the chapters, the small numbers are the verse numbers. Genesis chapter 22. Today, uh, we come to what might be the most well-known story in Abraham's life. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 9, blessings in obedience. Before we read, though... Would you please pray with me once more for our hearing and for the proclaiming of God's word? Let's, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you as the eternal God who is absolutely and invariably faithful. You and your word are certain, but we confess, Father, that we are, are weak, in need of help. So we pray, Father as we come to your word, that you would give us the confidence of Abraham to trust you, to trust you and obey you, and to show us Christ, Father, your beloved Son, given as sacrifice for our sins. In the shelter of Christ's blood, we make this plea. Amen. <coughs> I, I don't like tests. I know there are people who do, but I am not one of them. I know some of you are still deep in the world of regular testing, and, and you have my, my sympathy. But, but for the rest of us, we might need to, to work to remember the feelings that we would feel before a, a, a big and important test. You know, tests have a, a, unique, a unique way of, of frightening, of, of intimidating students. You know, the, the SATs, they've been afflicting college hopefuls for, for more than a century now. It, it's not true, but it can feel like the hope of your destiny is riding on your number, your score for that test. Well, instead of the SATs, now imagine that God himself is the proctor of your test. And instead of a, a three-hour test with hundreds of questions, there's just one simple question on the test. Of course, his test would be different, right? It isn't to judge whether or not you're worthy. No one would pass that test. It's not to know information that he doesn't know already, right? He already knows everything. Well, in our passage this morning, Moses tells us that God is testing Abraham. I'd say it's the third most rigorous test in human history. After Jesus' and Adam and Eve's. Abraham has been the recipient of God's very great promises and has seen God time after time act in gracious and miraculous ways to show his faithfulness to to Abraham, to Sarah, and his coming descendants. Now, his faith in God's faithfulness to his promises will be tested. It's just one question. Do you trust me? Abraham. The main idea that will guide our study of this chapter this morning is this. True faith in the power of God is demonstrated in rational obedience. True faith in the power of God is demonstrated in rational obedience. As we study this chapter, we must face the question too. Do you trust God? Is your faith complete in the works of obedience Has your faith been tested and found genuine? True faith in the power of God is demonstrated in rational obedience. I'm going to throw a curveball today. I, I apologize. But we have no outline to preserve the narrative tension, if you will. We'll just go from start to finish as the story unfolds. And in fact, we'll only read it verse by verse, one at a time, and comment as we go. And that means, as always, you'll be helped to keep your Bibles open as we read throughout the sermon. So read with me, only verse 1, Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Well, Moses begins our chapter with a simple time marker. You see it there. After these things... We'll see in the story, Isaac is now walking and talking and and carrying loads. And judging by the Hebrew word to describe him, he's, he's likely in his teenage years. So at least 10 years have passed from his birth and weaning back in chapter 21. We're fast forwarding in Abraham's life to when, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. You know, it's important we start here. Moses, the author, is giving us, the readers, details that Abraham himself doesn't know. After these things, God tested Abraham, Moses tells us. And knowing it's a test here at the start helps us to understand the story as it's, as it's meant to be. Now, think of it this way. What would it be like to make a lasagna without your 9 by 13 baking pan? trying to assemble pasta and and sauce and cheese without the pan. Well, everything would would fall apart. It it would be a mess. The whole thing is held together by the four walls of your baking pan. Just as our understanding of this passage this morning will be held together by this starting note from Moses. This is a test. Well, Abraham hears in verse 1 the call. Abraham Here I am, he's ready to respond to God. Let's read with me verse 2. He, that is God, said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. There it is. God's command to Abraham Remember, at this point in the story, Ishmael has departed from Abraham's household. So, so Isaac is his only son. He's his long-awaited son whose presence brought laughter and joy to him and, and everyone who heard of it. You know, back in Genesis 12, God called Abraham in a similar manner. A, a short, simple command to give up what he loved. There it was his country, his, his kindred, his father's house. There to go to an unknown place? And God promised him back in Genesis fifteen his his very own son as heir, it says. God then brought him outside and told him in, in Genesis fifteen five, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be this through that promised son. And this promise was was reiterated time and time again in in Genesis 17, 24 years later, that he would be the father. Abraham would be the father of a multitude of nations through this son. And this son will come by Sarah. In Genesis 18, we learned that within a year, this 100-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife would have a child. And finally, after all the years of fear and doubt, of hope and waiting, Isaac was born. And now, before Isaac was married with no child to carry on his line, God commands Abraham to offer him up as a sacrifice. Can you imagine what Abraham must have felt? We'll get clues later as we read on, but but just for now sit in that. Abraham is, is human, just like you and me. We've seen that, that his heart, too, is, is prone to doubt and to fear, to manipulate and contrive. What questions might he have? What fears? What, what doubts? His beloved, long-awaited son. How could it be? Well, let's keep going into verse 3. So, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. The Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard wrote a whole book about this one verse, verse 3, called Fear and Trembling. It's his attempt to understand the anxiety Abraham must have felt indicated by his early rising here in verse 3. He rose early in the morning. In that book, Kierkegaard wrote, the, the ethical expression for what Abraham did is he meant to murder Isaac. The religious expression is that he meant to sacrifice Isaac. But precisely in this contradiction is the anxiety that can make a person sleepless. Kierkegaard thought that that anxiety caused Abraham to rise early in the morning. It's what made him sleepless. There's a lot, Kierkegaard's book gets wrong, but but I think he's right here. Abraham is just like you and me. We don't know exactly what occupied Abraham's mind, but, but let's not be too quick here to assume pious indifference, as if it would be easy to sleep soundly before he sets out on this journey. And remember, Abraham is one of the wealthiest people in his region. He has hundreds of servants. Do you think it would be normal for a wealthy man, patriarch of his clan, and now in the 11th decade of his life, to saddle his own donkey? To cut his own wood? He could have snapped his finger and have had a dozen men to help. But Abraham... Rising early in the morning, takes the saddles from the wall to place on his donkey. He gets the axe and and prepares the wood, cut and bundled. Maybe he was trying to take his mind off of what was about to happen. Maybe he said goodbye to his wife and, and told her when to expect him, how long they'd be gone, and they head out. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Think about it. Three days. And that with no modern gadgets to distract them on the way. Just riding and walking. And Abraham knows what is ahead, but but we have absolutely no indication to think that his servants or his son do. The, The journey... From Beersheba to Moriah would be about 45 miles, maybe 20 miles on the first day. Stopping in the evening to set up camp to eat and to sleep. Rising again early the next day for another 20 miles all day. Then again, stopping to set up camp to, to eat, to sleep. Plenty of time to think. And if you wanted to, turn back. Well, then on the third day, Verse 4, he sees the place from afar. Today is the day. Read with me verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So Abraham leaves his servants to care for the donkey and tells them that that only he and his son are going to go to worship and, and come to them again. And here in in verse 5 is the first clue of, of what is in Abraham's mind. Every verb in this verse is in the first person plural. We will go. We will worship. We will come to you again. And I don't think Abraham is being deceptive here. He thinks that somehow Isaac is coming back from this. Well how how can I make that claim well because that's how the book of Hebrews understands it. Hebrews 11:19 gives us a spirit-inspired insight into what Abraham is thinking here, how he was reasoning. Hebrews 11:19 says this, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. You know, Abraham did not have all the answers. he, he did not see the way forward. But he knew two unchangeable things. First, that God had promised him descendants through Isaac with no backup plan now that Ishmael was gone. And second, that God had commanded him to offer up that son Isaac. So in faith, Abraham considered God must mean to raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac From the dead. And this was reasonable for Abraham to believe. God, who had revealed himself to him as as God Almighty, had taught Abraham that nothing is too hard for him. And Abraham had seen God already give life to the dead, so to speak. Hebrews 11 calls Abraham in his old age as good as dead. Sarah's womb was barren of life. But from this death, God brought life in the baby Isaac according to his power. Nothing is too hard for God. And that was Abraham's confidence. We will go. We will worship. We will. We will come back. You know, I'm, I'm afraid that too many people read this story in Genesis 22 and, and think that it teaches that true faith, faith that pleases God, is blind faith. They mean that faith begins where reason ends. That true faith means believing despite the evidence, contrary to the evidence. But I don't think that's true. You know, Abraham here had reason to believe that God could raise Isaac from the dead. So when God gave this command of, of frankly, violence to Abraham, this command was coming to a person who had experienced frequent and, and powerful, miraculous validation. We have to read Genesis 22 at the end of Genesis 12 all the way through 21. Everything that Abraham had uniquely experienced. And what do we remember that Abraham had experienced? Well, one author put it this way. The miracles were large-scale, frequent, predicted, communal, variegated, long-lasted, and multi-sensory. In other words, they were undeniable. And he goes on to conclude, To the degree that the miraculous validation increases, the chance that one is deceived or exercising blind faith decreases. So as we read Genesis 22 and what might sound shocking to modern hearers, we we have to know that the previous miracles validated what Abraham hears from God and, and why he should obey. No, Abraham was not deceived. He was not acting in blind faith. True faith doesn't begin where reason ends. No, it was reasonable for Abraham to believe that God would raise Isaac from the dead Because he had seen God's miraculous power time and time again in his own life. And Abraham's belief that God could raise Isaac from the dead leads to his obedience. This is why our our big idea this morning, our, our main idea, includes that word rational. True faith in the power of God is demonstrated in rational obedience. Reasonable obedience. So, Abraham obeys. He heads up the mountain. Read verse 6 with me. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. The beloved son carrying the wood for his own sacrifice up the mountain. The father carrying fire and knife. He plans to go forward with it. But but what is Isaac thinking in all this? Well, read verse seven. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Well, what we see clearly here in verse seven is the boy does not know the plan. His father hasn't told him. He sees everything else they need for the offering fire and wood, but no lamb. Well, will Abraham tell his plans? Abraham responds in verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. Here in verse 8, we have a preview of the resolution. Foreshadowing of what is to come. God himself will provide the lamb for the offering. Abraham, by faith, expects that somehow God will preserve his son. He doesn't know how he'll get there, but he knows that God will somehow preserve Isaac. He will live. God will see to it. So they both continue on and finally arrive at the place. Maybe at last the way forward will be clear. Verse 9. When they came at last to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. More meticulous detail as the narrative inches forward. Abraham builds the altar stone upon stone, making sure it's sturdy as his son watches. He lays the wood on top still with no lamb, and without a struggle he binds his son and lays him on top of the wood, ready to be sacrificed. And we're just left to wonder how they feel in this moment. God has has commanded Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. And to this point, Abraham has obeyed In faith. But now was the moment. What will Abraham do? Verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. What could you compare this moment to? It would be an insult to say it's like putting a beloved pet to sleep. This is his son. His beloved son. And not only important to him, but heir to the covenant, to God's promises for blessing to all nations. Hands trembling. Eyes closed. Knife in the air. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. As the knife hangs in the air, God interrupts. But, but, Calling from heaven, too. No time to come down and stop him himself. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. And remember, friends, how we started. God is testing Abraham. It has never been God's will for this boy to die. In fact, we read later in Jeremiah chapter 32. says that the thought for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac... For God's people to sacrifice their children has never entered God's mind at all. Speaking of the sins of later generations, God says, they built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. It's very clear from God's words here in Jeremiah that that God calls child sacrifice an abomination, a particularly heinous sin. God never intended for Abraham to go through with this. This was a test. And God announces in verse 12, Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. But what does it mean that, that God says, Now I know well, clearly, it, it's not as if God wasn't sure that it would happen, right? Psalm 139, verse 16, says of our lives, In your book, that is God's book, In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Or one of my favorite passages, Isaiah forty nine 46, 9 and 10. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done. What does this mean? God knew this day. He had written it before Abraham and Isaac were even born. He declared it from the beginning. The theologian William Plummer commenting on Genesis 22 verse 1 puts it this way. God does not seek thus to inform himself of the real character of his people for he knows it altogether. He knows it even better than we do. So, why the test, you might ask? Well, church, there are no hypotheticals in the real world. Obedience isn't obedience in theory. It must be practiced. Real faith really obeys. We can't just say, well, you know, in that situation, God knows I would have obeyed. Right? It's all good. No, real faith really obeys. You know, this is true even of Jesus. Have you read in the book of Hebrews that Jesus was made perfect? Wait, you think. I I thought he was always and already perfect. Speaking of Jesus, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, "...although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered." And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Yes, Hebrews says, Jesus had to be made perfect through obedience, it says. He had to really, actually struggle against temptation and obey. You know, it wouldn't be enough for us to say, "Well, well, hey, he's sinless; he's the perfect son of man." We know that he will obey. That's good enough. No, he really had to obey. Real faith really obeys. Yes, testing is necessary, and of course, Jesus succeeded where every other person has has failed. You know, this, this doesn't mean, though, that we, you and I, will be tested in the same way, certainly not as of Jesus nor of, of Abraham. It's, it's important to be absolutely clear at this point. The test that Abraham received is, is outside the realm of, of imitation. I don't know if you've heard of the book by John Krakauer, Under the Banner of Heaven, but he, he writes about a man who murders his sister-in-law and, and young niece, Convinced that God asked him to as a test. Even if it's fictional, he was completely and disastrously deluded. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, first of all, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Maybe you've heard Genesis 22, this story, what God asks of Abraham to argue that that religion is dangerous, that blind faith is the cause of religious violence. So let me say it again to be clear. The test that Abraham received here is outside the realm of imitation. This was unique to Abraham, never to be repeated. Why do I say that? Well, well, first of all, God does not speak to us like he did to Abraham. Abraham. God does not speak to us with new revelation. No, he speaks to us by his word, rightly understood. You won't find a command like this for you in the Bible. But but even further, Abraham played a unique role in the history of salvation. Though we imitate his faith, we cannot duplicate his role. You know, to suggest that, that we would do the same things Abraham does... Is as foolish as it is to say that, that we imitate Jesus by dying on a cross for the salvation of sinners. No, that is not to be imitated. Just like Abraham's test is not to be imitated. Well, with all that said, though, we must insist that yes, Christians too are tested by God. Not in this way, but we are tested. James chapter 1, verse 2 tells us to count trials joy. Why? It's because knowing that the testing of our faith makes us complete. We read earlier from James chapter 2 how how he uses the example of Abraham to show that, that faith is completed by obedience, by works. Faith without works, he says, is is dead. And by that, he doesn't mean that, that somehow works add to our faith for salvation. No, he, he means that works, like Abraham's here, in offering up Isaac, confirm the reality of faith. Faith vindicated. Works reveal faith. Testing, the, the Apostle Peter will say, prove our faith to be genuine, the, the real deal. So Genesis 22, God's test of Abraham makes it clear that, that his faith was genuine. Not just in theory, but knife in hand, real. To a Christian, might that explain the, the trials and difficulties of your life? They're not God's tempting, not God's punishment, but God's testing. Untested faith is useless. Faith without works is dead. It's as we said, true faith in the power of God is demonstrated in rational obedience. So, Christian, the the pathway to growth in Christ is is often the pathway of trials, of testing. The the troubles of this world are often used by God to, to... Grow and refine our faith, to bring our faith to completion. You know, I think of the trial of the man Jesus met in, in Mark 9, whose child had been afflicted with seizures his, his whole life. A lifetime of, of trials that, that brings this man to Jesus to say, I believe. Help my unbelief. The man has faith, genuine faith, But he needs God's grace in the trial for a more firm faith. And Jesus proves that his faith is reasonable, right? He heals his son. So I wonder, Christian, how has God been testing you? What has he allowed to come into your life to try to test your faith, your confidence in who God is and what he has promised As you think of those trials, I would warn you, Christian, be careful. There is always an an easy way out. Abraham could have turned back many, many times. But our goal is not what is easy. It is doing what God clearly commands. Faith demonstrated in obedience. Are you ignoring God's clear command because the alternative is easier? Be careful. That's not the fruit of faith. When tested, choosing what is easy gives no evidence of genuine faith. But when our taste is or so our faith is tested and and by his grace proven over and over in obedience, we can have confidence. That's the outcome in, in Abraham's life here in Genesis 22, confidence. Let's read the remainder of our passage in in verses 13 through 19 now finally all together and see how God gave confidence in response to his testing. Genesis 22 starting in verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Well, the story has its happily ever after conclusion. Abraham returns to his servants exactly as he had said by faith and heads home to Beersheba. But the heart of these verses is is the reiteration, the the confirmation of God's promises to to Abraham and his descendants. These verses repeat what what God has given to Abraham throughout his life concerning his descendants. That God has has chosen Abraham and his descendants to to keep the way of the Lord, to, to live righteously and with justice. And that his children will bring blessing to all nations of the earth. You know, obviously these promises have never been in question or at risk due to Abraham's disobedience. We've seen this time and time again. He didn't get the promises in, in Ur because he was seeking God. And he has done plenty since then to prove that he is not worthy. But his obedience here in chapter 22, and in obedience empowered by faith, does bring God's blessing. In verse 16, because you have done this, I will surely bless you. In verse 18, because you have obeyed my voice, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. John Calvin explained it well. He said, For the Lord here shows himself doubly liberal. In that he, wishing to stimulate us to holy living, transfers to our works what properly belongs to his pure beneficence. Well, there's some big words there, old language, but essentially he's saying that God rewards Abraham's obedience with blessing in order to encourage Abraham and all of his people to holy living. In fact, though, the blessing comes from his generosity, not our obedience. Calvin sells elsewhere. What is freely given is yet called the reward of works. Christian, our obedience pleases God. And he promises that our obedience brings reward. But of course, when Christians obey, it is by his grace. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, I worked harder than any of the apostles, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Or in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Including, I add, your obedience. Yes, obedience brings a blessing, but even that obedience is a gift of grace received from God. What is even more remarkable, though, about these verses is is how God begins in verse 16. Look at it again. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. And he goes on. The New Testament describes how remarkable this is. God has nothing or no one greater to swear by. You know, we take oaths by something we think is more powerful or more sacred. On my mother's grave, I promise. Well, God has nothing greater to swear by. So He swears by Himself. By Myself I have sworn. And the point of this added oath, Hebrews 6, 17 and 18 tells us, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, In which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God swears this oath in verse 16 for our encouragement, our encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. His promise is so unchangeable that he has sworn it now by an oath. So the result for Abraham and for us too today is confidence to hold fast to God in his promises. The reason God tests your faith, Christian, is not only to refine it, to to grow it, but to give you greater confidence to hold fast to your hope. As your faith is tested, so is his faithfulness proven so is his unchanging purpose. And what is the hope that we hold fast to? Well, tucked away in this passage is our hope. We haven't yet addressed verse 13 and 14. Remember, earlier in the passage, Abraham hoped that God would provide a ram, a, a lamb to replace Isaac and the offering. And after God calls to Abraham, he sees a ram caught by its thorns in the bushes. A sacrifice to die in Isaac's place. Isn't it amazing that Abraham calls this mountain not Isaac saved, but points to God's provision the Lord will provide. That is his hope. And in verse 14, notice... To this day it is called, said, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is Moses adding hundreds of years later that still the hope of God's people, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac, is on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. It wasn't just the lamb to replace Isaac that God's people hoped for. Years later, Moses says, they still hope for God to provide for them on that mountain, Mount Moriah. And there is one vital detail that makes this story open up for us in in awe. You know the only time in the Old Testament that Mount Moriah is mentioned again is the little detail of 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1 that tells us that Mount Moriah became the site of the temple. Where Abraham offered up Isaac is exactly where Solomon would build the temple. In other words, every other sacrifice in Israel's history at the temple would be acted out in the same exact place. A reenactment of this hope on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Year after year, the hope of God's people, God will provide. And do you know what sacrifice would one day come to that mountain? to that temple? The one to come from Abraham's beloved son's line? The one Matthew 3.17 calls my beloved son? Another long-awaited son who would also climb a mountain carrying the wood for his own sacrifice? But when, when the moment of his sacrifice came, No voice from heaven called to stop it. Heaven was silent to his cries. And the Father's wrath was poured out on this beloved Son. Jesus on the cross died as the Lamb of God. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Brothers and sisters, the similarities between Isaac and Jesus are not coincidence. God planned this to teach us. The story in Genesis 22, Church of God's provision of a lamb to replace Isaac, is meant for us to feel in our bones of the love of God in offering up his beloved son in our place. So friends, read Genesis 22 and see the love of God for sinners. In this way, God too offered up His Son. He gave His only Son. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Through testing, Jesus was made perfect, now the source of eternal salvation for all who believe in Him. We can be forgiven of every disobedience and sin, not because we make it up by our obedience, but by faith in the Lamb of God who died for us, and by acknowledging and turning away from our disobediences all because of how wide and how long and how high and deep the Father's love for us in Christ. Brother and sister, do you believe that? That God gave His only beloved Son for you? If so, true faith in the power of God is demonstrated in rational obedience. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of your beloved son that you did not withhold your son from us but gave him on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided for our sins, the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Lord, we see in this story of Abraham's love of his only son, your love for us. Lord, we praise you that at that moment Jesus did not come down from the cross, but he himself was our lamb, to die in our place for our sins, that we might know the forgiveness of our sins. Your wrath against our sins poured out on him, that we, by belief in him, might have eternal life. Lord, we pray that faith in this promise, this beautiful reality, would look in our life by real obedience. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.